Okay, so we're still in Revelation chapter 8. This is part 3, where we're going to now talk about the, the idealist and the preterist position on these first two trumpets. But Rick, if you'll go ahead and read uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 8 again. Uh, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hell and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all blaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. Amen. Alright, so we've already spent some time, I'm not going to go back and rehash uh, the futurist position and, and uh, the historicist, but the historicist was pretty enlightening, right? Or I hope that it was. I hope, and, and again, anything that we're doing, I know this class is taking a long time and we've got a lot of road out in front of us, but we are, there is so much more. You can spend a lifetime digging in, into these things and, and really discovering more and more about the book of Revelation and, and history and all kinds of things, and I encourage you to do that. So, again, my main thing is making sure I'm <coughs> wanting to expose you guys to things some of you may be aware of and may have been exposed to in, term, in terms of revelation and interpretation, but I believe many of you have not. And I think the super majority of, of people sitting in the church or that hear about prophecy and revelation have not at all been exposed. And if they were, they didn't actually know what they were being exposed to. They read a snippet or saw something in a position and were like, hmm, I wonder what that is. And, and moved on. Okay, so it's really important that you know that the, this is not, you know, prophecy is not settled, right? I mean, and and one particular interpretive model is not a settled position or model, you know. Do you think that uh, you know you never really hear much uh, preached on Revelation? I mean, in church, but do you think part of that maybe just because there's so different viewpoints in regard to interpretation of so many different, so many different ways to look at Revelation and and all the things that there is that the reason why or, or what do you? Think yeah, well, I think that's some of it. Uh, I think there's a lot of I think, and I'm going to say this of pastors and teachers and. There's a lot of them that don't even know this stuff, you know, and, and our human nature is to glom onto, you know, whatever we heard first or were raised up in or taught the most that sounded really good and, hey, those are really smart people. We just kind of go with that, right? And, and one of the amazing things in, in our time and culture is have you ever, you know, well, you are now, okay? So if you get on YouTube, I promise you, you can start finding people who are starting to talk about these other positions and going back and forth. But prior to that, that's not something you could easily find. And the books that, were, that had been written, and number one, you have a lot of scholarly work, right? I mean, it'll blow your mind when you start, I mean, it's a rabbit hole. And we, when you start getting into the scholarly works, it gets deep really fast okay and you're never gonna hear that kind of that level and in-depth work and and what have you just in the normal mainstream christian world because it doesn't sell it's not the pink and fuzzy bunnies it's not the pink and fuzzy bunnies running around that's exactly right 
how much do you think they address it in the seminary? In, in that? Yes, so, to a degree. It depends on the seminary that you're going to. So typically, you take a course just in that particular book, and you could skip it. It would be an elective type. Yeah. And if you get into it, yeah, it's going to be eschatology is what you're going to, that's going to be the course. But typically, when you look at their curriculums and their coursework and you follow some of the, and I, I do, I look at these different professors. What they typically will do is they'll give a quick survey. I could do a quick survey of these, I could cover the whole book of Revelation in about six weeks, you know, and, and give you the different positions pretty quickly. But what do you miss? You gloss over everything. You gloss over everything. And then what, what typically will happen is they'll emphasize their particular position. So you'll, you'll see the professor will talk about, he'll spend out of six weeks, he'll spend four of those weeks or out of the semester, right? He'll spend 75% he'll, he'll spend of that semester talking about the position they happen to hold or their seminary holds to. And then they'll gloss over some of these others. When did the preterist position begin to surface or come out? Since the beginning of the church. You, you find preterism all the way back to Irenaeus and Eusebius okay. and Polycarp and so first century. Preterism is actually relatively new. Yeah, mid-1800s. <laughs> Mid to late-1800s. And historicism, by the way, is, is almost equally as long as, as the preterists. But really, those two have paralleled since the beginning of the church. And that's fascinating. And like I said, remember, his, his, the historicist position, as well as, you have to understand, even though when we, we're kind of putting these in some nice, neat packaging, right, the, the historicist position and the preterist position do hold to a future event that isn't fully covered, for example, in the, the fall of the Roman Empire and, and Jerusalem in AD 70. So you can't forget that. You'll tend to kind of move over and think, well, how can that be right? How does, how does when did Jesus come, come back, you know, after 70 AD? Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... I remember the first time I was ever exposed to preterism, I, I read a pretty in-depth piece, and then I blew it off because I was, I was a futurist. You know, okay? And I blew it off because the immediate thing that came to my mind is, well, this can't be right. Jesus didn't come back. And that was the hardest thing for me to, to grab a hold of for many, many years. And part of it is because of the filter that we use, and we will get, in, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay? But they all... Hold to future event. Every one of them doesn't matter what position. Jesus is coming back a second time physically. You know, I mean, he's coming and he's bringing the angels with him, and he's coming back, and and this is all going to come to an end, and we're going to be with the Lord as believers. And the question is, what when? Well, not when. It's at the end of the age. Okay. But there's a whole host of questions in between that. And we're, and we're already hinted at some. We're going to hint a little bit here. See, I've got the word age circled. That's aeon in the Greek. Okay? And what does that actually mean? Well, you know, you're not going to go, you're not going to go just to, uh, you know, a Strong's Concordance or a word study and look up the Greek word and, and see here's the meaning, Right? You've got to actually, you're going to see that, and it's going to come out immediately, well, hey, this, this, 
This means something a little bit different than the end of the world. Right? In the Greek. Now we got to go and say, what did it mean to a, a first century Greek? How, how was that word utilized in the normative? So a first century Greek is speaking and using that word differently than the Greeks were 500 years before the, the New Testament was written. So, so how did they, you know, how did they understand it? And trust me, the works are deep into first century Greek. In the normal, I mean, deep. Pierre, can't pronounce his last name, is, uh, I'll, if you want to know the work and what have you, I'll bring it next week if you want to get your hands on it. Uh, is probably the world's eminent scholar on Greek. <clears throat> Biblical Greek. And, and what was going on in the world and how they used it and studying not just you know, the Bible and the Greek and looking at Greek language, but studying parchments, papyrus, Greek documents on how these words were used in everyday life and commerce, writings from that period of time, which are abundant. You know, you can, you can discover quickly what they meant by these words and how they would have immediately been understood. And remember, that's important to context. <laughs> You've got to have that context, and then you've got to add into it what is the Hebrew mindset. You can't ignore that. Yeah, I was just thinking, you're comparing Greek to Hebrew, uh, isn't the Greek, I mean, it, it, it tends to be even more precise or more... It's a bit, yes, yeah, Greek is a precision language. Yep, sure is, and you need to know that, you know. It's a precision language. So, so these things are important. And you've got to start taking that stuff into account. So, and as you, and we've already seen it, right? There's components of every one of these positions that make sense. It's like, man, I can see that. So, God, how do I harmonize this stuff with Scripture, right? And you go to Scripture first. Okay, we don't try to stuff Scripture into what we want it to mean. That's proof texting. And unfortunately, we got a lot of that. Just go to YouTube and you can get your heart's content of that stuff going on. Okay, But there's some really good stuff out there, too. There are scholars who are now... That, I think that's one of the exciting things is there are, there are deep theologians and scholars who are saying, you know what, we can get this information to the everyday body of Christ pretty easy now. And so there's some of them that they're jumping into the waters and they're doing it. So... I know some of you are really interested at some point in, you know, let's talk about election and, and predestination and all that. Let me give you, I'm looking over here because I know Larry and I've talked a little bit about it. I know Eric and I've talked about it. And Rick, you're probably... Leighton Flowers, okay, is a, is a scholar and theologian. He's here in Texas. Uh, I think he's, I want to say Trinity. But if you go to Soteriology 101, Okay, on on YouTube, Sotriology one don't ask me how to spell it, you'll figure it out. <laughs> Sotrio Sotriology one oh one, Leighton, L E I G H T O N Flowers. Man, he is doing he is he is because of the rise of the Reformed Church, he was a hard Calvinist for for years and then realized, wow, 
I, this is wrong. And he's a scholar and theologian. And so he's taking it head on. And he does wonderful uh, YouTube videos talking in depth about predestination, election, arguing with John Piper. I mean, he's going head on with the top folks and he's saying, now let's get to the reality. And he's bringing in a lot of folks. So if you want to really dig into that topic, I highly recommend you go and, and listen to that one. So anyway, and there's others, but that one's a great one. What was it called, Charles? Sotriology 101, Dr. Layton Flowers. Yeah, <laughs> just want to tell you about Revelation, and we're going <laughs> to... Yeah. And there's something like that, too. <laughs> all, right, so, all right, so the idealist position, we'll jump into this now. So the idealist, right? Now remember, idealist, this is all, the, this is all symbolic language. Yeah. You can't... You can't, in the literal sense of the word literal, take revelation literally. You've got to, you've got to sit and realize there's a lot of symbol. We know this is true. We've already seen tons of it. You cannot ignore it. But they say the whole thing is, is, is symbolic. So they look at the trumpet judgments that we're in, and they see, right, because these are limited these trumpet judgments are limited events and actions that are taking place. And we see that, right? Because only, how, how much the word? A third. A third, right? The seals were limited, in a sense, because they were a quarter, right? So they look and say, these are clearly limited events, and the way these trumpets and, and things that we're seeing are designed, they're designed to bring humanity to repentance, <laughs> That's what they're designed to do, is to say, listen, God is, God is reaching into the world, and he's saying, come on, get your act together, turn to me. And he's turning up the heat. And, and, and that's a biblical concept, right? I mean, there are consequences. And, and consequences to our sin and our actions, they start out maybe light or maybe even imperceptible to us. You know, where God's just prompting and getting our attention, and we know just in our spirit this isn't right, or, you know, I shouldn't do this, and I, I should stop. And then, but then you keep going, and you don't, and things start manifesting, and it just progressively gets worse. And in some cases, you might hit rock bottom because of all this stuff happening to you that's consequences to your sinful actions and thoughts and the things that you're doing, and you just wouldn't respond. But then all of a sudden, you get smacked in the face with, with something hardcore, and you realize, wow, I really messed up. Okay, So think of it like that. So these calamities, that being the case, these calamities, they occur again and again. These are not a single series of events that you can point to at a single point and say, there's the fulfillment. It's a pattern. It's a pattern, exactly. It's a pattern of events. And we saw that, right, in the seals. The seals were not super specific. To point at a seal and say, this is when this particular thing happened. Now, we're looking at history and we're saying, these seals seem to fit this period of time in history because of all of these events. So, to a degree, we're doing that. But they say, hey, it, these aren't separate events. These are things that occur over and over. Therefore, they can apply to multiple events that, that happen throughout the age that we're in. 
which the age that we're in is the church age. And when did the church age start? So we're, we're using a little bit of dispensational language here. In Acts 3. There you go. Or 4. Okay, so, so when Jesus dies on the cross, is buried, resurrected, spends, what, 40, 40 days with, with his disciples and is seen by 500 plus, then what does he do? Man, he ascends into heaven and he tells them, go and wait for the Holy Spirit, right? And what happens? Man, he shows up. And 3,000 are saved that day. And Peter, who had denied Christ earlier, right? Man, this guy is speaking with great boldness. And what you don't realize entirely is he's standing at the Temple Mount when he's doing this. Man, he's at the pools. You know, they've discovered the, 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 uh, the pools outside the, the gate of the Gentiles or what have you on the Temple Mount that were the pools that you dipped in to cleanse yourself to go into the temple and do the things that you're going in there to do. And, and it's in that general area where Peter gave that great... Uh, testimony of Christ and said, you're the ones who killed me. Right? And 3,000 were saved. And it says, and what? They were baptized that day. So the mystery was, how in the world did he baptize 3,000 people? Where did he do that? Well, guess what archaeology discovered? Well, right here. Here's these massive baptismal pools. Okay? So... Probably took him all day. But. Probably took him all day. That's right. But but it was accomplished, and the means to accomplish it was there. So we can see at any time. This is the idealist position. You can see these are these are limited in scope. They're designed for the for humanity to repent. They're not tied to any single or separate event. They occur over and over again throughout the church age. You can see. These happening in some way, shape, or form on any given day on any part of the globe. And you know what? Every one of us can say that's true. Okay? So, so they say these actually synchronize. This is no different. This is a progression, but they synchronize with the seven seals that we've already seen and opened. And, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And all those kinds of things. So these all synchronize with these events. But they are going to intensify. Which that makes sense, right? As, as, you're, as you're getting closer to the close of the age. Now what is the age? And this is important to the preterist position and the historicist position and the idealist position. Okay? And recognized even by the futurist position. The, the age is an aeon. It's a period of time marked by something, you know, specific. So, go ahead, Rick. Well, I was thinking that, you know, your, your immediate thought is that you're talking about the church age. There you go. But, you know, is that what it is? Well, we're going to find out. Well, let me step back. We're going we're gonna to look at some things that would seem to indicate. Now, here's what I'll tell you. In the church as a whole, across all of it, it's, it's pretty much uh, not a 
deeply debated thing anymore. That you have the age of the Israelite, right? And you have the age of the church. And there's a very distinct time when the age of the Hebrew nation and what their purpose was and the age of the law and all those kinds of good things, there's a, you know when it started and they claim we know when it ended. Because it ends with the New Testament. Okay? Right? Mm -hmm. what, did, what did, I mean, Christ fulfilled what? The law. And, and he, you read Romans. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't really argue that. Now, there are people who attempt to do that and jump in and say, hey, well, he didn't mean this and he didn't mean that. But when you dive into that, it, at least in my mind, it becomes pretty apparent that, no, that's not the case. But anyway, the age of the church began in Acts. The kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist said it. Mm -hmm. And there's other things, and we'll take a little side trip here real soon to dig into this a little bit more. Uh, but if those things are true, well then what's the impact on Revelation and how we should interpret it? So we already know that a mountain, we've already talked about, and we've already looked at passages of Scripture that mountains are, are representative of a kingdom or a nation. We've seen that. We've seen this cataclysmic language is used multiple times in the Old Testament and Scripture to describe God's judgment in events that have taken place multiple times. Why would we interpret that any different? Why would we say, yeah, but that's not what it means here in Revelation? It literally means, you know, to a futurist or what have you, that, hey, there's going to, the stars are going to fall out of heaven and to the earth and man's going to see it and the, the, you know, universe is going to roll up like a scroll and, and there's going to be something like a mountain coming from deep space. And we can point right now. We can look at objects that are headed this direction from deep space that are the size of mountains, right? And so we say, there you go. Well, except those things have always been out there. Those things have always been coming toward, you know, so it starts to fall apart. You know, we've been hit by large meteors before. This would not be new. Uh, so, so you've got to begin to kind of question those things. And then if I look at Scripture, and it makes it clear that mountains are absolutely used a lot to talk about nations and kingdoms and calamities of just astronomical proportions, that type of language is used to describe the fall of a kingdom or a nation or God's judgment that's going to get passed and destruction and things that are going to happen to them. And a man, God uses the same language. We go there first. Period. We go to Scripture first. And we have no reason not to bring that same interpretation and that same concept over into how we look at Revelation. And if you choose something foreign to the Scripture, that's on you. You know? If you choose to look at that first and foremost above Scripture, that's you. That's totally you. You know, or me or anybody else trying to fit into what they want it to be. You know, something that may not be the case. But we know that these events do have a literal or physical fulfillment. So we've got to take literalism and what have you into account as well. So the great mountain in idealism 
The common theme, every one of these, remember, has people who diverge from the core and get into some different positions. But the common belief is this is Mystery Babylon, right? And this Mystery Babylon, it's a key theme. Somebody, I'm going to kind of bounce around here for a second, but just to show you, this uh, Mystery Babylon is a key theme within Revelation. We're not going to read chapter 18. I'm just telling you, the whole chapter 18 deals with Mystery Babylon, but somebody grab Revelation 14.8 and somebody grab Revelation 16.19. We'll get 14.8. I got it. Alright, and Shannon, will you get 16.19? Go ahead, Jim. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all of the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So, so here we are, we've got fallen, fallen, and we're, so when we get to chapter 16, we're going to be dealing with Mystery Babylon again. Fallen, fallen, this angel's declaring, Mystery Babylon is fallen. And what did Mystery Babylon do? Caused all the nations, all of them, right? So now we, we can say, hey, there's this kingdom, there's this thing that impacts all the other nations and kingdoms. And, and Mystery Babylon forced it. Was there like a big drinking fest worldwide that took place on a particular day with special wine that was, I mean, is that literally how we should take that? That God's mad because Mystery Babylon made the entire world at the same time drink this specific wine? It's possible. <laughs> but, but you see, I mean, at some point, literalism starts to break down and become problematic, right? So, so we know there's symbolism here. Mystery Babylon and what Mystery Babylon is doing is, is there's some type of symbolism. Well, to the idealist and even futurists and historicists, okay, will agree, yeah, this can be applied this way. This is, this is symbolic of a world system, okay? It's a world system <coughs> in general. And the terminology that's being used and what we're seeing in these trumpet judgments is against this world system. Now, does that mean it's a worldwide government system? Not necessarily, right? But could be. But could be, absolutely. And we look for clues, and there are some clues that kind of indicate that, you know, and we're living in a world that wants to move us rapidly to a one-world government. I mean, that's hard to deny it kind of seems like that's a natural progression, right? I mean, you take, even, even when you look in isolated areas with kingdoms and what have you and tyrants, what do they typically want to do? I'm going to take over this whole area, right? And it's going to be based off of what's their resources, what's their capacity, do they have the military might, are they vicious enough, whatever, to make that happen. Well, we live in a world that has a whole different set of military capabilities and resources and technology and things that can say, hey, all we're doing is widening the scope. The net's a lot bigger and it's a lot more possible. You know, one country today would have a very difficult time taking over the world, okay, at this point in time. Hitler got, you know, <laughs> Hitler got close to taking over all of Europe, okay, but you can't say he got close to taking over the world because China was sitting over there and he hadn't done anything to China and you had India and he sure hadn't made it over here yet and you had all of South America. So to say Hitler was going to take over the world is a stretch. Yeah. You know, but, but he did some devastating things. 
It's a stretch today. You know, we're the mightiest nation on the planet. We don't have the capability of taking over the world. Okay? So you've got to step back and start thinking a little bit more and say, okay, what does that mean? But it's absolutely true that, you know, collaborations, things are in place that is trying to go to a worldwide governing entity. And the possibility of that being a reality is pretty real. Okay? Economics plays a big part. Econo that's right. You've got to have all the right pieces and puzzles. So, you know, economics, well, you know what? The, the United States, every, every nation in the world has marked their currency against our currency. So economically, in one sense, who's controlled the economies of the world? United States. That's right. You know, so, so there are different pieces and elements you can look at, but not any one of them are sufficient to make something like that possible. You've got to have other pieces of the puzzle. Well, those are definitely coming and growing and you know, all those things. So we naturally are inclined to do that, to take, dom you know, to take dominance and, and lord over other people. That's that sinful nature. And so if we got the capacity and the resources and the tools, we'll find a way as a human being to try to use those and leverage them to, you know, to our advantage. That just happens, right? So this mystery Babylon, though, you can absolutely say exists right now today. How is that? Well, it's this world system that's growing. Okay? But yet you still have independent nations and kingdoms and people that are part of a world system that is in place and is growing and is, you know, consolidating power and things like that. So how does all that work? Well, the ideal is say it's this world system that God is coming against in these judgments and saying, because that's a system created by man that's warring against heaven and God's ways. And we see that happening right now. And God's saying, I'm done. It's finished. Now I'm going to show you it's finished. But before I just drop the hammer and it's all completely done, I'm going to give opportunity and time for you to repent. And if that means i got to turn up the heat, I'm going to turn up the heat to get as many of those who will repent as possible to repent. Why is that? Because God has already told us. Not willing that any should perish. I am not willing that any should perish. That's a loving God who's putting up with a lot. You know? Wow. <laughs> and a lot. So, so that's the preterist position, and it's a theme that we see. So they look and say, that, and we're going to go, somebody grab Jeremiah. Did okay. you, you got that? Okay. okay. Jeremiah 51, verse 25 and 42. And the idea is, even here, imagery. Remember, we're going to go back to Scripture. Imagery from Babylon, actual city, actual place and kingdom, actual time in history that God dealt with. And God looks at Babylon and he uses them. The prophets use them. John here is using imagery that we see in the Old Testament to describe this. So Jeremiah 51, verse 25 and verse 42. I am against you, O destroying mountain. You who destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you off the cliffs, 
and make you a burned out mountain. A burned out mountain. In 42. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. But this is pretty cataclysmic. Now, the ocean did not rise and the waves go and, and take out <coughs> Babylon. That's not what happened. Right. So is that prophecy wrong? No. Absolutely no. not. You know, the sea, when we start following that elsewhere, we've talked about the sea has always represented the masses of people and the Gentile nations. And, and, and the people, the sea is going to come and the waves of the sea are going to overtake Babylon. That is exactly what happened. It just wasn't the ocean. It was the sea of people from warring the Medes and the Persians coming and, and overtaking Babylon. And they couldn't stop the waves of destruction that was coming because it was God's judgment. The time was done. Okay, So that same language is used here. We've got to think about that. We can't ignore that. Okay, So the first trumpet really deals environmentally. So you're looking at environment. Man, environmental catastrophes are happening all the time. Okay, You know the Sahara Desert, 3 million miles, square miles... Okay. was not always the Sahara Desert. You know, it was a lush, green region. They're finding villages, you know, riverbeds that are below the sand. In places in the Sahara, the sand dunes are 150 feet deep mm -hmm. to get down to the actual grave. We don't have a clue what's buried under those sands, but they keep finding villages and, t and places that <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. What? Now they believe that the Sahara, the time that it took for the, the, that region to become the Sahara Desert, less than 200 years. That's pretty catastrophic. Okay? Man, science is cool. And the things and the technology and what we're discovering is mind-boggling. And it is speeding up. Okay? I have flown over the Sahara probably four, five, six times in the daylight. And it looks like just a wave after wave of sand dunes. And my thoughts were, wonder what's below that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow. Okay, amazing stuff. So the preterists, now this, this gets interesting. The preterists, they look and they say this entire series of trumpets and woes, right? Because when, when we get past trumpet number four here, uh, that we'll start into next week. We're going to see that these turn into woes. The last three trumpets are also called woes. These deal with the Jewish War of 66 A.D. to 70 A.D. Obviously, what happens in 70 A.D.? Jerusalem, is, Jerusalem destroyed. is destroyed. Now, I've kind of thrown this tidbit out there a few times, but it's almost three and a half years by the way, from the beginning of this in 66 A.D. to the point that Rome's destroyed. Now, hmm, can't ignore that, right? So these are also called the last days of the Jewish commonwealth. Now, we use the last days in eschatology, and we think it means the end of what? Man, the end of everything, the end of the world, the end of mankind, the end of the universe. Except that's not what last days always means in Scripture. So it's used also about the Jewish commonwealth. Now, why the commonwealth? Not the Israelite, not the Hebrew person. It's the Jewish nation. 
Man, when the when Jerusalem was destroyed and the yeah. temple was destroyed, that was it. that's it. Okay? I'm going to speed up here. <laughs> Can you guys hang with me? We've got about 12 more minutes. Let me get myself set up here. Okay. So, so the Jewish commonwealth, and why did the, does the previous look at this? They say the first four trumpets predict several years of pillaging, ravaging of the countryside and the people. We've already talked about some of that historically with Josephus, haven't we? Amazing how much that uh, lines up with these descriptions. And, and predicts the destruction leading up to the final destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD over nearly a three and a half year period, guys. So the plagues, this is the other thing they see is the plagues, and this was interesting to me. These are reminiscent. We've already talked about it. Everybody across the board keeps pointing to these line up with the plagues in Egypt. That's a, like a signpost. Not telling you that what happened in Egypt is the fulfillment of Revelation. That's not what it's telling you. It's saying you need to go pay attention to the events and what took place here in order to understand what's going on now. Okay? So what's the key thing that came out of the end of the plagues? Israel, a nation, has grown into a nation. Man, when Joseph... Okay? allowed his family to come back into the land, at that point in time, Israel comprised 70 people. 70. And 400 years later, they were about 2.5 million. <laughs> and, and, and God prophesied, He told Abraham, that they would be in a land for 400 years that was not their own. They needed that time. And the first part of that time, they were incredibly prosperous. Okay, Before they went into slavery. And when they were big enough, at the right time, the nation is birthed. Okay? This, in this spot in Revelation, with what we're seeing here, this marks the cessation of the Hebrew nation, the end of the Hebrew commonwealth and age, at the fall of Jerusalem, it ends, and a new nation is birthed. What would that nation be? A new kingdom of God is birthed. What? The church. The church. And where is it birthed out of? The remnant of Israel. Well, we've already talked about those things. God's kingdom is birthed at the time that the commonwealth, Israel is in it, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Right? And now the kingdom of God is birthed in the church. And the church isn't just Gentiles, is it? It was first the Israelite, the remnant of Israel that was prophesied would happen. So this isn't replacement theology. We were grafted into them. We're one new man according to Scripture. This is the new kingdom of God is first. Somebody grab 1 Peter. You know what, just go to verse uh, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Anybody do I have a tape? You got that, Lane? 1 Peter 2, grab verses 9 and 10. Ready? Yep. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had no received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now here's what's interesting. If you go and you start and you read this, who's he speaking to? Huh? 
about the Jews. He he did. That's exactly right. If I just proofed, if I just yanked that out, it kind of sounds like you were not a people, and now you are. You didn't have mercy and forget, and now you do. That kind of sounds like the Gentiles. Except he's talking to the Jew. He's talking to the remnant Jewish person, and then we are grafted in. Now that's fascinating. Okay. Now I'm going to kind of skip over a couple places. The trees and the grass. And preterists, they see it both symbolically and literally. Symbolic meaning it's righteous people, it's, it's people in general, etc. And interesting enough, when we read Revelation 7-3, the sealing of the 144,000, it said don't, don't touch the trees until what? They're sealed. Until they're sealed. You get to 9-4 and it says don't touch the grass and all that until, or don't touch those who are sealed. sealed. So here's the point. They say even the righteous will physically participate in. Get this. Because in the church, and we've already talked about the 144,000, the futurist says, you're out of here. You won't even be here. But we've already seen who's sealed right now. Us. We are. Believers who give their life to Christ are sealed. It's what the scripture says, with the the guarantee of of the Holy Spirit, until the day of redemption. And here the sealed ones are also experiencing, they're there. We're going to see that here, okay? Now there's a couple of ways you can go with that, obviously, but nonetheless, here we are. Mm -hmm. So the preterist says, it's not that you're not going to experience these difficulties, it's that God's protecting you. Now that doesn't mean you won't physically suffer, But God's protecting you and keeping you, and you're not set aside for the wrath of God. Salvation belongs to you. God's provision belongs to you. In Exodus 15, 17, Israel, God says, His inheritance, Israel, is His mountain. Okay? Even today, Mount Zion is the symbol, the mountain is the symbol of the nation of Israel, and God calls them that. Okay? And what actually happened? When they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, they literally burned it. They burned it to the ground. And what do we start that trumpet out with? Trumpet two? Something like a great mountain burning cast into the sea. They literally, the Gentiles, the Romans, burned the great mountain city literally, and the nation burned it to the ground and everything about it. Burned it to the ground. And what happens at that point until 1948? Israel is dispersed into the sea, into the Gentile nations. It's dispersed for nearly 2,000 years. Okay, until 1948. Sounds like this prophecy, sounds like this trumpet was right on target. Now I want to read two quick things. Well, first, let me point this out. Somebody go grab Matthew chapter 21. This this makes Jesus' words in a particular event very poignant. Okay? Matthew 21, verse 19 through 22. Somebody? You got that, Jeff? Fire away. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it, found nothing on it except leaves. He said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. At once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Keep going. Go all the way through 22. 
Jesus answered them, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this, even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now that's fascinating. Because this is right out, this is in Jerusalem. This is outside Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and all of that area, right? When he sees a fig tree. What's the fig tree? Right. It's Israel. It's Israel. What do futurists say when you see the, the budding branch of the olive tree, right? Am I right? So the fig tree, they say, this is Israel, and it's fruitless. And he's standing outside, and he tell, and they're amazed. And he ties what he says about, if you have faith to speak to this mountain, be cast into the sea. It'll happen. He ties those two things together, a fruitless tree and a mountain <laughs> cast into the sea. It'll happen. Hmm. Israel's a fruitless tree. And, he, and what did he say about that fruitless tree You'll when he touched it? What did he say? May you never bear, May fruit, you again. Never bear fruit again. Wow. The end of an age and the beginning of a new one. Okay? That's completely fascinating. Now I'm going to read two things from Josephus really quick. So, the first one is, do we have a description of a literal event? Why do, why do preterists take this literally? Because, jo, because it literally happened. So, Josephus writes, he says, and now, and this is in the uh, Book of Wars, chapter 11, verse, uh, or Book 11, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, or pardon me, 6, Book 6. He says, and now the Romans, this is Josephus, eyewitness, writing about what he sees. And now the Romans, although they were greatly distressed in getting together their materials, raised their banks in one and twenty days, so twenty-one days. After they had cut down all the trees that were in the country that adjoined to the city, and that for ninety furlongs round about. So, Everything as far as you could see around the city of Jerusalem, every tree. And by the way, Jerusalem was talked about they had beautiful cedars and all those kinds of things, right? And every one of them were cut down. For ninety furlongs round about, as I have already related, and truly, and truly the very view itself of the country was a melancholy thing. For those places which were before adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city, and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. For the war had laid all signs of beauty quite waste. Mm. Eyewitness. Mm. One third of the sea and the ships are destroyed. Commerce, right? Trumpet two. Did this happen? Well, there's a particular battle. Again, Josephus describes. Where the Romans chased the Galileans into the Sea of Tiberias. And then this is what happens. And for such as were drowning in the sea, if they lifted their heads up above the water, they were either killed by darts, arrows, or caught by the vessels, 
But if in the deeper, or <coughs> but if in the desperate case they were in, they attempted to swim to their enemies, the Romans cut off either their heads or their hands. And indeed they were destroyed after various manners everywhere, till the rest, being put to flight, were forced to get upon the land, while the vessels encompassed them about in the sea. But as many of these were repulsed when they were getting ashore, they were killed by the darts upon the lake. And the Romans leaped out of their vessels and destroyed a great many more upon the land. One might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies, for not one of them escaped. And a terrible stink and, a, and vary the sight there was on the following day, or in it. Stink and a, yeah, and various sight there was on the following days over that country. For as, far, as for the shores, they were full of shipwrecks and of dead bodies all swelled up. And as the dead bodies were inflamed by the sun and putrefied, they corrupted the air insomuch that the misery was not only the object of commiseration to the Jews, but to those that hated them and had been the authors of the misery itself. And that was on the Sea of Tiberias. So, we need to know some things, right? I'm going to pray us out of here. <laughs> Lord, I just thank you, Father God, for who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you just minister to our hearts as we I just think and consider these different uh, aspects of history and what's going on here in Revelation. Help us to understand it. Help us to just grow in our walk and our love for you as we uh, dig into your word. We just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>